I was telling Vanessa that, and she goes, the Bible's really weird sometimes. And she's right. That's not a bad thing to say. But all that to say that if sometimes you read the Bible and you don't know what's going on, that's okay. <laughs> that's why we pray for God to give us understanding and wisdom. And because sometimes the Bible does tell us some very strange things. But this morning we will be in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. My plan was to get through verse 9 today, and it it didn't happen. So again, I'll be changing the schedule that's back there in the back. But even so, we are delighted to read and study and hear from the word of the Lord this morning. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Haggai that shows us how you encouraged your people to do your work. Shows how you encouraged a people out of exile to finish building your temple. And I pray this morning as we look at this word, as we look at the context and things surrounding this, you would give us wisdom and clarity, that you would help us to apply this text and not just see it as a historical narrative, even though it is, but to understand there are promises that you've made to your people here and through the rest of your word, that we can know that if you've promised something, it is as good as done. We can delight and have joy and comfort in knowing that what you have spoken is truth. And we know that the sum of your word is truth. I pray that we cling to that truth and we cling to your son and cling to your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So since we have moved here, almost closing in on a year ago, my son has picked up a new interest, um, which is a common one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, which is, which is Legos. He loves building with Legos, as most kids do, and rightfully so. And so for Christmas, he, of course, got a lot of Legos, probably too many. Um, but I haven't stepped on one yet, so maybe we're not there just yet. Um, but one of the was a set with two flying pirate ships or airships from uh, the Super Mario universe. Um, it took him a couple days to build them. In the set, there were two different ships, and it took him a couple days, probably not very long at all, really. But when he finally finished it, I was quite excited to see what it looked like, what it did, how, and just excited that he got it done so quickly. Um, one of them opens up, and you can see inside the ship and see the different things that are there. And also with the um, 
whole Mario set of Legos. They've got like mini computers in them now because it's dramatically different than when I was a kid. Um, and so with the little Mario character, they can make the sound of cannonballs firing at each other. Really neat. But also why Legos have computers in them now is something else. Um, dramatically different than what I knew as a child. And I'm... But even so, one day, not long after he built it, um, Haddon made the mistake of leaving one of those on the dinner table where his little sister could reach it. After a few seconds of pulling pieces off, I try to grab it from her, and before I can, she throws it on the ground. I'm sure we've all been there, right? And while it doesn't entirely shatter, one of the segments did come apart, um, and of course, Haddon, while reasonably upset, took it well, and yet I, I reassured him, we can build this, and we can rebuild it, and we will. Uh, it's been three and a half weeks. Think we finished rebuilding it yet? But at the same point in this story, it reminds me and really kind of helps me to understand where the people were at in this text. Helps me to understand the delays and the frustrations in rebuilding the temple. It's that continual reminder of, oh yeah, we should finish that. Oh, we will. And it sounds quite a bit like the temple of it's not yet time to rebuild the temple. And yet, at the same point, I also kind of get it. He, he built something really cool. He took his time to build something really neat. And then it was destroyed. And thus, rebuilding this airship is a little bittersweet. Because he already did it once. We used to have it. It used to be there. He used to see it. And yet, similarly for the temple... It used to be there. They'd seen it before. At least some of them had. And yet for the remnant of the people, they fear and they know that the second temple will not be as nice as the first. Convenient with, conveniently with Legos, he still has the pieces and he still has the instructions, so it's not that hard to finish. But the people have something quite a bit different. In this text, they're given, though, something greater than instructions given from Legos. But at the same point, it's... Instructions given from an authority. These people are given another word from the Lord to guide them along in their path in rebuilding the temple. And the way that we'll look at the text today, it doesn't perfectly divide into three segments, but I'm going to look at it in three different ways. In the past, they are, God reminds them of the past. And then he reminds them of his promise. And then he encourages them with his presence. And so as we look at the past, as we look at the first part of this, the text begins by giving us a date. And like I've mentioned before, these dates aren't just random numbers. In many cases, they actually connect to something important. And the date at the beginning of the first chapter, though, we see is the beginning of a feast. It's the first chapter they have this feast of, or sorry, this new moon, because they're on a lunar calendar, so it's based upon the moons. And so it's that new moon feast where they should be, a, should be a day of worship. And here we have another feast, something a little different. But to kind of explain that, I'm going to go back a little bit. But the first part of Haggai's, same, or of Haggai's sermon is calling them to remember the past 
And this feast that is here is exactly that. It's the seventh day, the 21st month. But as I mentioned, they're on a different calendar than us. They're on a lunar calendar, whereas we're on a Gregorian calendar. So it's not July 21st. Rather, it corresponds to October 17th of the year 520 B.C., and yet, anytime we see the seventh month, it should kind of trigger for us something important because the seventh month is a holy month. It begins with the Feast of Trumpets where trumpets are blown and it's Sabbath day. And then on the 10th day is the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And all of this is in Leviticus 23. And from there, we learn the seventh month is a holy month, but we also learn about this other feast that on the 15th day, begins the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And the 15th day of the month, it lasts for, or starting on the 15th day of the month, going for seven days is this feast. And so on the eighth day is a holy convocation to the Lord, a Sabbath day. And thus the 21st day of the month is the final day of this feast. And so in this, they're told that this feast is specifically there to teach them something. And so you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths or tents when I brought them out of Israel the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So in short, for the duration of this feast, the people were to live in tents to remind them of the Exodus and their dwelling in the wilderness and how the Lord provided for them in the wilderness, how he provided for them manna and quail, and how for 40 years they lived in these tents and God cared for them. So it's sort of like a nationwide camping trip. And thus the people, though, here in Haggai, which we don't see whether they were doing this as they should have, but in the way the calendar falls, they should already be thinking about their past and thinking about how the Lord had cared for them and provided for them in the wilderness. And thus, in their reflection of their history, this text continues on for them with that. So it's this last day of the feast that the word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. And Haggai is told to speak to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the remnant of the people. And he asks them a very specific question. He asks them, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who of you who are in this people saw the previous temple? And compare to what you have now, is it as nothing now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? There's a sense in which this is kind of like rubbing salt in the wound. You know, which of you looks at what you've got now, remembers that previous temple? How do they compare? And it's almost, it kind of feels like a jab. And it's not all that different than asking a five-year-old to rebuild Legos that his little sister just smashed. They already know that the temple isn't the same as it was but this is a teaching lesson and it's partnered with a wonderful promise and this whole text will continue out to show that what the Lord is going to do in this next temple in this second temple will be greater than what he does in the first 
We'll get to that next week, though. And those who remember this present temple, it's interesting, they're probably in their 80s or 90s, and they're called to recall the splendor of Solomon's temple, and presumably then to report that to the next generation, and to compare the two temples, in a sense, to remember the good old days when you had that previous temple, and then look around at what's in front of you. But as the text goes on, they're not called to wallow in pity. They're not called to wallow in the sadness of this temple, but rather they're given a significant promise. But if we look back at Ezra 3, we actually see how they react to the temple foundation being there. Um, Where we read, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice as they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so they could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the, shout, from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and that sound was heard far away. So there's two reactions in Ezra as the people have the temple built. As the second um, foundation is laid, there's a group of people who are weeping, and then there's a group of people who are shouting for joy. And it's the previous generation who had seen the first temple that are weeping. And they're weeping because they know that the second temple pales in comparison to the first. But it's not merely that it's lacking in size and in splendor. But the Lord doesn't leave them there mourning for their shortcomings in building an inferior second temple. They presumably used the instructions that were given from Moses, the instructions that were given in, um, to Solomon to rebuild this temple. And yet it's still for lack of resources, for lack of time and lack of everything and all the wealth and preparation that Solomon had, it's not quite the same. And then let's look at verse 4 of Haggai 2.4. Yet be strong and courageous. That's not the right verse. I think Dave and I hit the button at the same time. That's my fault. Um, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And yet what we read here in Haggai 2.4 is a relatively familiar message. There might be words in that that you think, oh, that sounds like this verse. And that's very much the case. When the people in Deuteronomy were told to take over the land and in numbers, they were called to remember the Exodus and how the Lord took care of them. Uh, We looked at this this morning in Sunday school where, and we'll actually look at it even in more depth next week, so... 9.30 in this room, if you want to join us to get a little bit more extended background into this. The beginning of Moses' final, or first of final sermons in uh, Deuteronomy 1 through 4, he explains and goes through the entirety of the history of Israel up to that point. And it says an encouragement to remind them that the Lord their God is with them. And then in Joshua, in Joshua 1, the successor of Moses not the high priest here, um, is told the same thing. The Lord tells Zerubbabel, or as the Lord tells Zerubbabel Joshua and the remnant of the people to be strong, 
He also, in Joshua 1.6, tells Joshua, as he's telling him, you're going to fill in for Moses, you're, you're up next. But he tells him to be strong and courageous. And then in just a few verses later, in 1.9, he tells him again, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So as the people were to have faith in God, remembering how he cared for them in the wilderness, how he provided for them and led them and cared for them in the conquest, so they are here to have the same faith in God as they do when they rebuild the temple. And the last part that is key here is the same promise that is made to the people in the conquest and to Joshua is repeated again. I am with you. And as we read in verse 13 of chapter 1 last week, God tells them to work for he is with them. God is assuring them to do the task because God is in their midst. And God, in telling the people to recall the past, he also tells them to recall the promise. And this promise exists in two facets here. The promise of his presence among them, but also the promise of the covenant that he cut with them on Sinai after he led them out of Egypt. So as we read in Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, the Lord says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So in the Exodus, God promises to be with his people. He promised that he will be their God and he will dwell among them. And he is reminding them here in Haggai 2 of that promise once again. He has said that his spirit remains in their midst. The instruction in verse 5 ends with this re often repeated command in the Bible not to fear. It's one of the most frequently given commands in the Bible. Jesus regularly tells his disciples, do not be afraid. And yet this command also draws a further connection to the building of the first temple. When David, speaking to his son Solomon, says something similar and something very similar to the message of the Lord from Haggai to the people, he tells his son to be strong. God is with him and not to be afraid. So in 1 Chronicles 28.20, we read, then, Solomon said, or then David said to Solomon his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. So, see, Joshua is told this. David tells his son Solomon to this, and the same thing is being repeated here to the people in Haggai. Thus, the people are given the same promise that God gave his people at Sinai. In the wilderness, right before the conquest of Canaan, and that David gives his son Solomon in constructing the first temple. I asked this question last week, but it bears repeating. How hard would you work at something if you knew that God's presence was promised among you? 
But then let's move a little bit further. Let's look at the presence. And it's interesting because concerning the second temple, there's a really odd belief among first century Jews. The first century Jews believe that the spirit never came to dwell on the second temple. I think I have a solution for this, and it's not the solution they have. This is also repeated in the Babylonian Talmud, which is a document, a collection of Jewish documents from the 3rd century to the 6th century, so quite a bit removed from the 1st century. And it's written after the destruction of the 2nd temple in 70 AD, which is also important there. So for some Jews, they never, or they believe that the Spirit of God never came to dwell in the 2nd temple as it did in the 1st temple. And part of the reason they believe this is that there's no event for the second temple as there was for the first, which is the, the spirit is seen filling the temple in 2 Chronicles 7 and 1 Chronicles 8, um, as well as in 2 Chronicles 5. But just because they believed that in the first century doesn't mean that it was true. Because in the New Testament, we see that many speak of this temple as if God dwells there. And yet, if we also look in history, there's something remarkable. Because there are events of really strange things happening in the first century at the temple. There are reports of lights going out that were supposed to always stay lit. There are reports of a heifer being brought for sacrifice, giving birth in the temple courtyard. Gates opening unexplainably, and so on and so forth. Other, all sorts of weird stuff happening in the first century of the temple. The Talmud specifically refers to events like these occurring to 40 years before the destruction of the temple. So the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. 40 years before that, 30 AD, about. Well, we know of something that happens in 30 AD that puts us right around the death of Christ. So God's presence was with them in the first century because it was Jesus dwelling among them in the flesh. Jesus himself was God's presence dwelling among them. And yet what happens is Jesus offers up his last breath. The temple curtain tears. The temple curtain is what prevented people from going into the innermost chamber, which is where the Holy Spirit dwelt. And yet people could not enter into that except for one day a year, the high priest would go in for the day of atonement. And so as many have asserted, when the temple curtain tears, that holy of holies, that most holy place is now rendered useless because there's nothing preventing people from going there. So the Holy Spirit would no longer dwell in the temple, at least not in that temple. The Holy Spirit now dwells in the temple of the believers of Jesus. So they're likely right that from 33 AD to 70 AD, the Spirit did not dwell in that temple because the Spirit had now taken up residence in God's people. But they wouldn't see it this way and likely would say, well, if the Spirit's not there at that point, then the Spirit was never there. So they're seeing it quite differently. 
And so for this reason, though, many of them do in continue to feel that that second temple was indeed inferior. And though at times they may have felt that God was not in their midst and not in the temple, God promised to be in their midst, and thus he was. There's a little bit of a divide that I'll um, explain a little bit more next week, is that the second temple was built upon by Herod, but it's still the same foundation. It's still that same second temple. But there's a reminder to us as well. So as they, at times, likely felt that God was not in their midst, that God was no longer there, he had promised that he would be. He had told them that he was in their midst. And so for us today, for those who are believers in Jesus, we can take the same security. We can delight in knowing that even in moments of sorrow or sadness, that Following the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, God has promised to be in your midst, regardless of how you feel. As much as we live in a society that believes that our feelings are superior, that our feelings are authoritative, in many cases our feelings do deceive us. I mean, we even read this in the book of Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? I mean, the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful, yet the world around us tells us to follow our hearts. Do not follow your heart. Your heart will be very quick to tell you that God has abandoned you and he has not. And yet that's likely what the people felt here. In various times, following this, in the exile even, and even following um, when they're removed from the land once again, or when the temple falls. I mean, at that point, God's people were carried on by the Holy Spirit. Those who had faith in Christ were comforted for and cared for by his Holy Spirit. God does not abandon his people, even at times of sorrow or sadness. And yet in what we read here, in what we see in this text as we see that they're comforted and told to work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, they're told to remember God's words. They're told to remember how God had carried them out of Egypt, carried them out of slavery and carried them through the wilderness for 40 years, even though as you read the book of Numbers, we see they continually sin. We see that they're continually judged for their sin, chasing after other gods, chasing after idolatry and adultery and all sorts of immorality. And yet God punishes them for these sins. And over and over again, you read that thousands of people die in response to a plague, in response to a judgment for their sin. Um, even in the the rebellion of Korah. You see a couple hundred people die, and the next day the people complain, look at Moses and say, why did you kill all these people? Even though it was a giant sinkhole in the land that opened up and swallowed them that clearly Moses would not have been able to do, but God did it. And then they respond, they grumble against him, and God sends a plague, and more people die. And yet in the midst of all of that, God still continues to grow these people. We see the comparison of the two censuses and the numbers are almost identical. Even though a stiff-necked, rebellious people continually rebel against God, he still 
maintains their numbers. And as the beginning of Deuteronomy that we looked at today in Sunday school, Moses makes a statement saying, your people are as many as the stars in the sky, which is referring back to God's promise to Abraham. That God had not abandoned these people even in the wilderness. God had not abandoned these people even in exile. And that for those who are followers of Christ Jesus, God has not abandoned you even in whatever circumstance you might be in. Even in horrible work circumstances, even in you know, the loss of loved ones, even in the hardness of navigating a life as a widow or a widower, even in the difficulty of divorce, illness, sickness, whatever it might be. And yet, <clears throat> the promises that are made and the things to remember are not all that different for us. As the people who were rebuilding the temple are called to remember what God has done in the past, to carry them through the task at hand, we ought to do the same. They're told to work, for I am with you. And for us, we can remember the same thing. Those things that the Lord has called us to do, to love our neighbor, to care for one another, to be obedient to God's commands, we can do those things and should be encouraged to do those things because God is with us. I'd asked the question earlier, what would you do if you knew that God was with you for what he has told you to do? And God has told us to go, therefore, to all nations, making disciples. And thus, for us, we should remember what we're told. We're, we should remember what we're commanded to do. And we should remember the gospel. And to preach the gospel to yourselves in moments of sorrow, in moments of hardship, in moments of sin. To remember that even when we're not faithful, God is. And to remember the past. Remember what the Lord has done for you. The sacrifice of Christ is often compared to the Exodus. Where we <clears throat> see that God called a helpless people who were not a people out of slavery. He led them into slavery in Genesis. God tells Jacob not to be afraid to take his family into Egypt. But then he also promises them that he will bring them out of Egypt as a great people. And yet while they're in Egypt, they are a helpless people who are in slavery. And he leads them out. And he cares for them and he builds them into a magnificent people. But then also remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death so that he might be a perfect sacrifice for his people. Remember the sin that God has pulled you out of. I mean, and it's in Paul's words where he says something similar. He says he lists an assortment of sins saying these are wicked and these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. He reminds, Paul there reminds his readers of their sins that the Lord had pulled them out of. 
And then it says, but you were washed, you were sanctified. And so in reminding them of their sins, he also reminds them of what the Lord has done. And so for us, we should remember the sin that God has pulled us out of. Remember the sin that God has redeemed us from, but not just to remember our sins, but to turn to the Lord and rejoice in our forgiveness, to rejoice in the redemption of sins and repent even more. Did you remember what your sins of yesterday? Repent of those sins and delight in the Lord Jesus. Remember how the Lord has been faithful to you in this life and then declare that to all nations, which isn't just getting on an airplane and flying across the world to declare it to people, but also declaring it to your neighbor, your children, their children, and anyone who will listen. But then there's also the promise. Remember all that Jesus has promised, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that he promised that he was going to prepare a place for us. He promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus promised that no one will be able to snatch us from his hand. He has promised to return, and when he does, he will judge sin and wipe away every tear. He's promised that he would be with us even to the end of the age. And what a remarkable promise that we can be comforted in knowing that Jesus will be with us even to the end of the age, contrary to whatever is happening in our world, whatever is happening on whatever we see in politics, whatever we see in wars or in our everyday life, we can be comforted by the presence of God. But yet that promise is also comforted with presence. To be reminded that every day God is in the midst of his people. When Jesus left to go prepare a place for us, he did not leave us alone. But he sent the Holy Spirit to comfort us and to guide us and to intercede on our behalf when we don't know how to pray. And what a wonderful reminder that is because in the midst of hardship, it can be hard to know how to pray. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And he has made those who profess Jesus as Lord into a temple. Which is fulfilling the words of Ezekiel 36 and putting his spirit in us. Taking our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh and breathing his spirit into his people who are called by his name. And the promise of God's presence among his people to complete the work he has done, or to complete the work he has given them, is strong throughout the entire Bible. We see that in Exodus 29, 45, and 46. We see it in Joshua 1 in verses 6 and verses 9. See it in 1 Chronicles 28 and 20. We see it again here in Haggai 5. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Do not be afraid to rebuild the second temple. But yet we even have a greater task because we see the Lord Jesus giving us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. As Jesus tells us that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. What a remarkable statement to that charge, that all authority has been given to him. The commission we're given is given from a king with all authority. 
And the commission is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then there it is at the end. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It sounds remarkably similar to work, for I am with you. And all of these verses that I've just referenced and the one I've just read, all have the same promise that God is with his people and he has given them a task to do. Jesus has promised the same thing with this commission. And it's in this same text as we read, even in very much the same thing as what we read in the end of Haggai 1. Work for I am with you. So we, the followers of Jesus, can go out proclaiming the gospel with joy because we are given the same message that the remnant was given to rebuild the temple, the same message that Joshua was given to lead the people in the conquest, the same message that the people are given as they exit Exodus or as they exit Egypt. And because God is with us, we can confidently get to work. King Jesus, having all authority, has given his disciples a task. He tells us to go to all nations making disciples. And after giving that task, he comforts us with his presence, saying that he is always with us to the end of the age. What a remarkable message and a wonderful comfort that we are not alone in our task, but that God's given us his Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. What a remarkable message and a remarkable comfort that we have similar to those in Haggai. They were able to work because God was in their presence to complete this temple. And we're able to work because God is in our presence and has made us into a temple. Let's pray. Us that you would be with us. And your son has promised us that he would be with us and that you have given us your Holy Spirit